In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today on In Discussion in a three-part series, Dr. Brian O'Leary, a scientist-philosopher with 50 years of experience in academic research, teaching, and government service in frontier science and energy policy. He was a NASA scientist-astronaut during the Apollo program, the first to be selected for a planned Mars mission, and participated in unmanned planetary missions as an Ivy League professor. Over the past four decades, Dr. O'Leary has been an international author, speaker, peace activist, founder of nonprofits, and advisor to progressive U.S. Congress members and presidential candidates. His latest book, The Energy Solution Revolution, describes the enormous potential of breakthrough clean energy technologies, their suppression, and their logical necessity for our survival. Zero-point vacuum energy, cold fusion, and advanced hydrogen and water chemistry could provide us all an abundant future for all of humanity. In 2004, he and his wife, the artist Meredith Miller, moved to the Andes in Ecuador, where they co-created Montesunas, an eco-retreat and educational center dedicated to creativity and the rights of nature. Dr. Brian O'Leary. Brian O'Leary, welcome to In Discussion. It is such an enormous pleasure to have you joining me today. Well, thank you, David. The pleasure is mine. How is the weather in Ecuador today? It's very nice. The weather here is almost always perfect. We're, we're about a mile high in the Andes. Uh, right now we have some clouds. We might get a little rain later, maybe a thunderstorm. It's lovely here. It's green. It's lush. We just love the environment here. As we continue this series, I would like to build up uh, to your latest publication, The Energy Solution Revolution. Talk about that in the tail end of our program today, as well as moving forward. But what I would like to do, as with all my guests, is chart your life, draw a line in the sand, and return back to your childhood so that we can get a good visibility of where you come from. I realize that you were born in Boston. Can you tell me a bit about your childhood and the world that you remember then? Yes. Well, David, it it was uh, in many ways, I think, uh, now looking at the world the way it is now, uh, almost an ideal childhood. I I sometimes think of the image Pleasantville. Uh, I grew up in the Boston suburb of Belmont, sort of in the shadow of Harvard University, with uh, lots of intellectual life, as well as um, a general sense of optimism. When I was uh, a Boy Scout, I I was a very enthusiastic Boy Scout. I I became an Eagle Scout. I grew up during World War II and, and the aftermath, which in where I was, it was pretty protected and also very... Um, 
very optimistic about the future of humanity. And so since a very early age, I took an interest in space exploration, even though it wasn't in NASA's, uh, well, there was no NASA then, there was no, no Sputnik yet. And a lot of people thought I was crazy to pursue my interest in space exploration, but I would voraciously read books like uh, some of Werner von Braun's and Arthur C. Clarke's books uh, back in the uh, late 40s, early 50s as I was growing up. And so I had a great deal of optimism, even though uh, this may not have been acknowledged or understood that much by my elders, but my parents encouraged me to move forward with all of this, and so I became an Eagle Scout at good grades and seemed headed for the very uh, the best and uh, brightest of careers, which uh, turned out to be about space, and that happened... Uh, rather quickly, as soon as John F. Kennedy set the lunar landing goal in 1961, that's when I graduated from college, also in Massachusetts, Williams College. They were, uh, I'd say, basically good years, and I was kind of assuming the whole world was that way. I was pretty naive about some of the, uh, the, the problem areas that we were having, even then, but it, at least it, it provided, propelled me forward into, let's say, a lifetime of, uh, of a lot of alternative thinking going against the grain of, of the mainstream. What is it, looking back, that you remember most about childhood and the environment and your parents and the world? Clearly you were growing up throughout the Second World War. Do you consider perhaps that in 1945 the atomic energy that we found was a turning point in the world looking back on that period do you think it really did begin an evolutionary process as barbara marx hubbard talks about now that's leading to a, a rebirth in our society absolutely i couldn't agree with you more david yes 1945 of course as a kid, uh, I was totally oblivious to the horrendous damage that the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs created and how unnecessary they were. It was later in my life that I became a peace activist, uh, that I became very much more aware of these things. So uh, obviously, and in my family, my parents and everybody around me uh, celebrated the fact that we won victory over Japan and, and victory in Europe as well. And that seemed uh, to me to be really good news and all the more reason why we could propel forward into uh, a, a more of an expansive visionary point of view. Were you in any way insulated as a child? Did you grow up in a special world, perhaps? Rather isolated from that world? Were you inspired by myths and legends, old civilizations, history of Egypt, the sort of Dogen theories that we see? Was that something, looking back now, that was in your mind that you traveled with as a youngster? Yeah, as a youngster, I, I was very insulated, no question about it. I didn't see the downside of some of the atrocities of the war. I was... Uh, 
oblivious to any kind of alternative thinking about our history and who we are. Uh, but I, I certainly wasn't oblivious to the prospects of space travel. That, that really captured my imagination. But also as a child, especially as a young child, I, I felt a sense of awe toward nature. That I, I used to spend the summers mostly in New Hampshire at a summer camp and did a lot of hiking and mountain climbing and close contact with nature, which uh, now I look back upon as, as being a very precious time for me, much more precious than, than maybe I would have acknowledged during most of my productive years. These thoughts that you have now retrospective, or were they certainly alive in your mind when you were young? Well, the, the contact with nature and interest in space exploration and just traveling in general was something that I always had at that time. So it wasn't only retrospective, it was uh, truly alive within me. In terms of some of the atrocities and some of the problems that we were having, I was oblivious to that at the time. You travel through Georgetown University gaining a MA in astronomy in 1964. Was there a particular reason for going into that subject? You had completed physics prior to that in 61. What was it that took you into that direction rather than possibly looking at quantum physics or something along those lines? Well, it, it really was my single-minded purpose to get involved in the space program. And so when I graduated from Williams College in 1961, and it was right within a week of my graduation, Kennedy uh, made his dramatic announcement for the manned lunar landing uh, by the end of the decade. And that coincided very well with my ambition, which was to get involved in the space program, which very rapidly expanded at that point. So it was a, a great synchronicity and timing the mysteries of quantum physics weren't apparent to me at that time. Like most people that are trained in physics, the concept that consciousness must exist to explain the paradoxes of quantum mechanics, that was not in, in my consciousness at that time. I had to wait until much later in my life when I actually, ironically, when I left the world of physics, that I was able to embrace metaphysical realities, which then overlapped with the physics. So you could say that in my Georgetown years, I was a master's student, actually a PhD student in astronomy there, and that actually helped avoid the draft, too, to go to Vietnam, which was a, a great relief, because a combination of that and working for NASA uh, really put me in a very good position to uh, build a career in, in space travel, space exploration and in planetary science, which, which is what I did later in life, of course, a little after that. Would you say that by the time you arrived into NASA in the middle to late 60s, looking back on it now that it was a good experience, and there's relevant context here to your book that I mentioned earlier, was it becoming apparent of the compromises the conflicts that scientists had across the board uh, with the establishment, 
Was that something that was prevalent in an organization like NASA? Were you aware of that then or more aware of that now looking back? Uh, yes, I, I became quite aware of that even then, but that that's after I got my PhD at Berkeley. But I, I also realized that I was kind of uh, going against the grain and that I was irreverent toward established groups. For example, when I was at Georgetown, I wrote a play that parodied the astronomy department, and uh, in a sense, I was kicked out uh, with a master's as a consolation prize. So my my sense of irreverence and going against the grain festered <laughs> around then, and later it came to much fuller flower when I got into the astronaut program and found that the really the dominance of, of NASA at that time was more test piloting skills rather than a scientific background. That's what led to my own rebellion, in a sense, and, and my resignation from the astronaut program. That the, They were moving in one direction, I was moving in another direction, and so I quit. That was 1968. Around that time, there were, there were a lot of things going on that had a great deal of potential, uh, including the possibility of going to Mars which was the main reason why I was selected for the program. I was one of 11 astronauts appointed by uh, NASA out of over 2,000 applications. But I had just completed my PhD thesis about Mars at University of California, Berkeley, which then well qualified me as a scientist astronaut to be one of the first to go to Mars. Well, it was still in NASA's program plan. But then uh, we got involved in Vietnam when Lyndon Johnson was president, and that just really quashed the whole thing. Our, uh, the 11 of us that were appointed called ourselves the XS-11 because we weren't really needed either in terms of national priorities or in terms of priorities within the astronaut corps. And so then upon Carl Sagan's invitation, I went to Cornell and uh, became an assistant professor of astronomy there for several years, colleagueship with Carl and others that were working on the unmanned planetary exploration programs. This is a big departure, is it not? Traveling from NASA to Cornell. NASA was very ambitious, pulling together a large number of scientists and flight personnel to become astronauts. Was this something that was propelled uh, by the confidence of John F. Kennedy? And why did that at that time really become suppressed? Because there seemed to be so much momentum. What are your feelings about that? Well, yes, it was like, in 1961, of course, Kennedy set the lunar landing goal. It was, a, it was a wonderful visionary goal, and it spawned not only the race to the moon in the Apollo program, but also uh, the unmanned planetary exploration program, which uh, I ended up being quite involved in instead of the astronaut program, which allowed me to continue working with NASA in, in a very visionary way. But meanwhile, uh, yes, the atmosphere of suppression uh, began when Lyndon Johnson became president and he, he got involved in Vietnam. 
and the Vietnam War took priority over the NASA programs, and Johnson basically canceled uh, the later Apollo flights and some of the flights I would have been involved in, including the possibility of going to Mars. So that's when it began, and I think it was mainly because of the war in Vietnam, which then, of course, I when, when I... Uh, it didn't take me very long to be a, a war protester. Uh, as soon as I got to Cornell, Carl and I and a number of other people uh, were leading war protesters. We'd march in Washington, and we'd actually uh, be covered by the news in those days. Uh, in those days, the war protest was, was honored and recognized by a much larger number of people than doing that now would be. As you moved on to Cornell came to, to know Carl Sagan very well. How did he view the period from the end of the Second World War up to that time in the 60s? Was he very supportive of us as humanity uh, launching ourselves into space to find the universe more? Or did he have any reservations about that given the conflicts of the system in, in which the government and NASA found themselves in a very difficult decade? Yeah, good question. Wow. Well, Carl, at that time, Carl and I pretty much thought alike. We were colleagues uh, even before I got in the astronaut program. Sometimes I guess what you call rivals because I was working with a very bright thesis advisor. His name was Donald Ray, who was very... Uh, kind of in, in a healthy way competitive with Carl, and we would be kind of have the reputation of being the world experts on Mars and planetary surfaces and atmospheres, which uh, it was a very vigorous fast-forward time for all of us to be involved in, on the ground floor of planetary exploration. So that, that kind of kept us all pretty busy, and it was before Carl and I had a parting in terms of metaphysics. Uh, I, I pursued my metaphysical studies later after I left Cornell. And Carl never really did that. He more or less became very famous as a result of his, his work in planetary exploration and the space program in general. But we kind of split ways later in life. He wasn't very happy I left Cornell, and that was for a seemingly frivolous reason. Uh, one time I landed in the Syracuse airport nearby, and it was a blinding blizzard. It was May, and I said, enough of this cold winter stuff. I'm leaving Cornell. And so we moved to California at that point in 1971. I could have stayed at Cornell and probably uh, led a pretty good career there in the astronomy department. But it also, I think, would have caused problems because about 10 years hence, I started to have some unusual paranormal experiences, and I realized that life was about a lot more than just straight science, including the kind of work that we were doing with NASA. Before we launch into that area, my work, uh, to a great extent as a social historian, is certainly in accord with the famous Barbara Marks Hubbard, that this evolutionary process that we're going through now, very much around a dimensional concept, leads from the action that we took in 1945. But in my letters from America, Brian, I talk about the decades following. I talk about the 50s as being the 
decade of fear with the Cold War. I talk about the 60s as being the decade of lust. And ever since I talk about predatory greed, looking back at the 60s, though, would you say that and there were clearly many complications. You you had Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy making their famous speeches, uh, and you, you had the Vietnam War, and you had a, a, a massive movement. But would you say that it was very much a generation then that knew how to destroy the building but were not armed enough, as perhaps we are today, to actually rebuild it or build something different? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, in those days, I was pretty naive. Um, I, I was not yet an environmentalist. Uh, I was not yet aware of the destruction of the culture. And as you so well stated about how these decades contributed to that, I was really pretty sheltered from that throughout. And of course, doing something like uh, going to Berkeley for my PhD and then the astronaut program, and then Carl Sagan, uh, I felt in many ways, in terms of my career, I was on top of the world. And I, I could also say personally, I, th I think uh, I, I kind of had an inflated opinion of myself and what I was doing uh, without realizing that the world was getting destroyed during that time. Do you place some of that responsibility on academia as much as the establishment I see a direct connection between the academic vehicle and have done for many years you can even see it being very apparent in countries like the United Kingdom there are huge crossovers and complications that come out of the the academic establishment where many of the scientists are funded which are politically motivated, motivated by the corporate mansion. Is that something that you would resonate with? I sure resonate with that now. I didn't then. I thought that I was headed for an academic career, and that would be just wonderful because I love teaching, I love doing research. And I was, during that time, pretty sheltered. I, I had no idea about the corruption and the fact, but I, I, I was having little inklings of it then. For example, how do you obtain a NASA grant? Well, it wasn't necessarily ability. Like when I was at Georgetown, because the space program suddenly boomed, I was able to get a $98,000 grant simply by writing a three-page proposal. And that, of course, spoiled me in a way because it made me think that, well, if it's that easy, then, uh, gee, this is great. What a great place to be. But I had no idea about the systemic failures there, that it had a lot more to do with who you know and who you're loyal to than what you know or what you're able to actually get done. So I, I was fairly oblivious, although I did see signs of the corruption in academic institutions. And for quite a period of time, particularly during the uh, 1970s, I went from university to university each time thinking the new one would not be corrupt and that this would be where I'd want to be and stay and get tenure and so forth. So I, I went to, I had affiliations with something like five or six different universities sequentially during the 1970s and none of them seemed to uh, satisfy me. But I, 
rather than to explore why that was so, I basically kind of led myself to believe, well, it's going to be okay, but it wasn't. And it wasn't okay, I think, because throughout the process, I was always a pretty free thinker. But it was only uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, that I finally cut, my, cut the cord with academe once and for all. And what a liberating experience, although a very, very difficult one for me, because I had two kids that I had to uh, support going to college. I definitely took a road less traveled. My colleagues thought I was crazy. My most recent appointment, university appointment, was the Princeton Physics Department, which was about as prestigious uh, an appointment as you could get, with about five Nobel laureates out of 40 of us, all men. And very often, we'd be swilling a thimble full of sherry and talking with our fellow physicists about how ridiculous claims to the paranormal were. And it was around that time I was starting to have paranormal experiences, and I realized I was in the wrong community. Plus the fact that the way things were done, the politics in academe were just vicious and had experienced this already at a number of places, um, Hampshire College in Massachusetts and a number of others. I, I just didn't play the game. I didn't do it the way it, it should have been done for me to have been uh, secure in my position. And... So in retrospect, I say, well, boy, I'm glad I did that. Uh, it gave me breathing space for the last, well, I guess you could say uh, 30 years of my life to, to be able to be a, a free thinker and, and be able to uh, look at situations for what they were and to express my opinion, to do research that was clearly outside of the box of ordinary expectations. That was pretty exciting. This is clearly repeating many scientists' lives in a, a progression, as my dear friend Susan Anthony talks about in the Heroes series, whether you're in media or science or whatever area it is, you have to finally give up the ordinary world, the establishment, and take the risk of departing from that, uh, losing friends, being threatened by enemies, and yet it seems that that is certainly a journey, and, and I don't think it's anything new. Tesla went through it. Uh, many scientists have gone through it over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, people like Jeffrey Wigand, of course, who went up against the tobacco industry. It is a firm paradigm that has been going on now for 100 years and possibly more. But I notice in that journey that you take, you have declared this, that there were areas or, or periods where you did float in and out until you found the energy to retreat completely. And you're still working as research staff lecturers, Princeton, even in the late 70s. When do you think was the precise time when you let go of it completely and said to yourself, okay, I may have family, I may have children, but there is a greater cause. There is something a lot more important well beyond the paradigms of this world where we have to look at other influences, higher forces. Was that in the 80s or was it later? I would say that happened mostly in the 1980s. 
the first signpost for that was taking a, a human potential training. It was a life spring training in which I was able to remotely view a person I didn't know before in a uh, kind of an experimental setup that really blew my mind. It just caused me to be tremendously curious about the science of consciousness, about the new sciences of the paranormal. And so then, just like my interest in outer space, since I was a kid, I, I pursued an interest in inner space. And so then perused all the literature I could and participated in various experiments on proofs of the paranormal, proofs of remote viewing and uh, healing through our consciousness and so forth. And around that time, it was also interesting because I knew Barbara Marks Hubbard. She was a friend ever since the 60s, so you, you mentioned her, and she is obviously a, a shining example of somebody who's been able to balance the metaphysical reality that surrounds us and, and what we need to do in terms of our evolution. And uh, so people like that, they provided a very good kind of transition scenario for me because it wasn't that easy for me to just immediately give up that life. Even though in 1979 I had that experience, I had a near-death experience in an automobile accident in 1982, which also changed my life. It caused me to leave Princeton and spend a few years working in the aerospace industry on non-military projects because by then I was a confirmed peace activist. But at the same time, I needed to make an income, so that provided me a few years of, say, leeway while I was sending my kids to college. But I, I completely broke the cord in 1987. And at that point, I would say that then I was well into my metaphysical stage and then spent uh, close to a decade in intense metaphysical exploration, personal growth, experimenting with things. I wrote a number of books on new science, which has now been kind of backed up by many books that have happened su subsequently. This was now, we're getting around the time of, well, of course, Frijak Capra had, had written The Tao of Physics, which is a, a very well-known, received book. And so I, I was like among those people in my own work, and yet also unaffiliated with any academic institution. I was pretty much cut loose to do my own thing. I became an entrepreneur by default. It was difficult at first not getting paychecks. Well, for example, I spent several years going around, most of my income, uh, which was a lot lower than at the university, going around to metaphysical churches like Unity Churches and Churches of Religious Science, talking about new science and consciousness. And it was exciting because I really love this stuff, and it, it, it really, I knew and know that this is the science of the future that's longing to be born. That is a science held very much in spirituality, nature, our planet, different dimensions. As you travel through that period, I think it's very important, and, and I would certainly like to receive your response to this, that you were not alone. I've interviewed the great uh, Dr. Klaus Heinemann, Professor Bill Tiller, who in that era were going into, entering into the same areas that 
that you are now. And they were mentored by others to support them in that transition, whether it's moving from NASA or any other establishment. Looking back on that, we have talked about Carl Sagan, but were there other mentors either inside the establishment or outside the establishment that looking back you consider as being part of that process in supporting you and in, in pushing you in this direction to find and honor a new science that you talk about? Well, yes. Part of how I did that was that during the 80s, principally into the 90s, I wrote three books, Exploring Inner and Outer Space, The Second Coming of Science, and Miracle in the Void. And all three dealt with experimental proofs of the science of consciousness. So I made a point of it to visit some of the best and, and brightest outside-the-box thinkers. And so I'd go to the laboratories of, of people like Marcel Vogel. I would go and visit uh, Willis Harman at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I would spend time with as many of these pioneers as possible and, in a sense, act as a, a media person, to a, as a reporter for the, the great works that they're doing and, and use them as an example. And then meanwhile, there was mentoring going on to help me reinforce what I was doing. You mentioned Bill Tiller. He, he's one of the best. You know, a lot of these people, I, I had to catch up with them uh, relatively recently, but I, I've gotten to know almost everybody in this new field and feel a tremendous warmth and, and sense of mutual support. It takes a while to find out who these people are and what they're doing. I think this would indicate a trend at last now where possibly in the 1960s and even into the 1970s scientists, uh, media people, conscious people across the board may have been in the minority but it's very evident now that they are moving towards a majority of thinkers that realizes the need for a mechanism to bridge them with the, the wider community. You saw Dr. Klaus Heinemann as early as 1972 talking about orbs and then of course Bill Tiller uh, talking about the bodysuit, the power, the energy that we have as human beings and I think that uh, even back then, where you saw Bill Tiller visit Oxford for a year talking about this, it was clearly very difficult to convince people of those notions, those understandings about the wider universe. But would you agree, Brian, that now, as we are seeing a definite need for the planet to find very different, as we have talked about, zero-point energies, that there is a movement now that is finally showing that this group of people are beginning to get across their message, beginning to get out into the wider world in talking about uh, the universe rather than the do-consume material world that we have been living in for so many hundreds of years? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It It, it is catching on now at last. I'm I'm so relieved. It seemed to be a long time in coming. I was hoping just from my own point of view to see this grab hold 
a lot more because uh, I did feel pretty much alone. Fortunately, I was able to seek out a lot of these pioneers of consciousness science relatively early in the game and sort of build my own foundation and be able to uh, carry on my work as an author and as a uh, researcher and to convince more and more people that these things are, are very real. Yeah, I, I agree with you. When I got into the zero-point energy field, which was really relatively recent, say late 80s, early 90s, I finally decided to take that one on. And by the way, around that time, I also was the co-founder of an organization called the International Association for New Science. And we have annual meetings and some think tanks in Colorado, in Fort Collins mostly, we were able to convene some of the, the best consciousness researchers in the world and publish proceedings. And this was a very exciting period for me and for my colleagues. So that was mostly during the 1990s. And around then, I also began to address the question of, of free energy or zero-point energy or new energy and became quite closely acquainted with people like Tom Bearden and, and worked with people like Steve Greer and others who were at the, sort of at the cutting edge of some of these areas of research, uh, as well as, of course, the UFO alien question. And as I got more and more into it, it was becoming very clear to me that these things were very real. Uh, I did a, a world tour of uh, free energy inventors uh, during the early 90s and visited about 10 of them in their laboratories, photographed them, checked out their work, and it was at that point I, I was able to verify for myself that these things are very real. And that then allowed me to become an advocate of responsibly implemented uh, breakthrough clean energy technologies, of which there are many, and all of which have been successfully suppressed since the time of Nikola Tesla. I'm very interested, Brian, very interested to receive your knowledge on zero-point energy as to when it was established because in my research and reading this is although it is now being refined and of course it will probably take another two or three years or more to take it from the tabletop to becoming a commercial prospect zero-point was talked about in the late 1800s it wasn't a secret it may have been in its very primitive form. When you move into or move back to Berkeley and you had talked about becoming the founding president of the new energy movement in 03, are you now seeing people, uh, because Berkeley is, has, was always fairly controversial in the scheme of things as a university, but do you now see so many years later that the model has changed, that the receptiveness has changed in, in universities such as these as to being more open to the issues that we're talking about, uh, given where we are with zero point, uh, given where we are with no doubt uh, higher powers, uh, understanding better the need to bridge scientists that, that still continue to fight between uh, quantum energy, quantum physics, and, and biophysics, do you see that they are now beginning to open their eyes and see that this is an unstoppable train in this area? 
Well, yeah, I, th I think it is unstoppable. I think that universities are still among the last to accept this. It's been an interesting dynamic looking at the past two decades because uh, I've, I've been involved with a number of groups. Uh, the New Energy Movement was just one. Actually, the ones that I was mostly involved with, most intimately, for example, the Society for Scientific Exploration, which which are mostly mainstream university scientists getting together and more accepting these things at the cutting edge of science. The zero-point energy uh, and cold fusion, I put a I put any of these energy sources, breakthrough energy sources, as being in the same general category, which uh, which we call new energy, which is would totally blow open the paradigm, no question about it. It seems like the resistance to that has been greater than than uh, the resistance to the science of consciousness, uh, and maybe that's because uh, the consciousness science has been around a lot longer. There. And it's a little more acceptable to the mainstream. It's less of a threat because we, we now know that the vested interests of the oil companies, of the nuclear companies, and so forth is so huge. And the vested interest of the government to support the continuing destructive use of fossil fuels and nuclear fuel, that has such a grip that uh, that's been a harder sell. I wouldn't have thought so, but it is. And, and even I was resisting that. I, I waited until the 1990s to fully embrace the uh, potential of uh, the new energy technologies, any one or some of which can, can really change the world overnight. And so my main interest over the last two decades has really been the dynamics, the social political dynamics of the suppression and promise of of the new energy technologies. Well, this is reflected in a general reluctance by society as a whole to embrace a new technology, to embrace a cleaner world. And the conscious community certainly is emerging very strongly now. The whole argument around zero-point energy, which is, I believe, much more complex than just referring to an energy because in actual fact i believe that it's a universal energy a very dynamic paradigm for the human being but all of these have been compromised uh, by the need uh, for fossil fuels and the continuation of people to push back up against the establishment because of the revenue and the ways of life that come out of maintaining these energy sources the oil and the fossil fuel and the coal mining etc but they are definitely something would you agree that have to come to an end by default before the planet says enough i cannot handle anything now unless it is absolutely clean devoid of this equation of work where uh, you are constantly getting out as much pollution from energy. It's a very complex situation, but would you agree that it is beginning to resonate now? I, I think so. I, I just, I, 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 I fervently pray for this every day because it, it, it is, it's so crazy. It's, it's, well, I mean, it, it just so saddens me to follow some of the the climate debate and the Cancun conference or the Copenhagen conference and all of these people uh, are in the box of wanting to create something new beyond fossil fuels 
but without specifying what that might be. And to me, it feels like I'm in some sort of dream, or maybe that I'm a ghost returning to the earth. And no matter how hard I yell, no matter how passionate I get about the possibility of a free energy economy, very few people listen, and especially people in political or monetary power. And in fact, of course, it's actually much worse than that. There are actually dozens of people who've been assassinated or, or severely threatened. I was threatened once. I, I was almost killed once. I won't go into the details just because of the uh, sensitivity of the issue. But uh, because of my uh, advocacy of the research in these areas. So there's no question. And if this happens to you directly, personally, then you, you really get... Uh, the aha, it's, it's an experiential uh, grounding of the fact that the powers that be don't want this. They don't want uh, breakthrough clean energy. Even though I know it's, it's real, I've seen it for myself many times. You've touched on a few other general things about the history of the zero point concept, and I totally agree with you, David. It, it is a complex issue. It's not a matter of just getting some sort of circuit diagram off the internet and go and build your, your own device in your garage. No, it, it's a concept that responds to human consciousness. That's one of the principles of the zero-point energy. It's a principle that was discovered, as far as I know, first uh, discovered by Faraday in 1837 when he put some magnets on a meal, uh, wheel. He, he spun up the wheel and he found excess electricity coming off of it that couldn't be explained in any way that was understandable to physicists after that, so they totally ignored it. And then there are people like Tom Bearden who described this as being a miscarrying of Maxwell's equations that, in fact, the universe is just full of potential energy. Every point in time and space can be tapped under certain conditions using either electromagnetic devices or, or our own consciousness or water or some kind of hybrid system. And so I think we're all learning from our experience what this is about. And even though there have been many proofs of concepts in the laboratory, and even though uh, attempts to implement the technology have been cut off every time, because of the suppressive forces, it's also a complex thing that requires a lot of research and development, which, of course, hasn't been supported by anybody. I mean, I, I sometimes want to scream out at somebody like Richard Branson to uh, fund a protected research and development center or somebody like Bill Gates. But, of course, they're, they're taking very different paths, and perhaps in part because they've been told not to... Uh, touch this area or else it's a strange situation we're in it is and i use the word complex simply because there is no doubt now that we have to expedite our journey into the zero point energy uh, it is no longer talking about uh, surf power or windmills but the complexity in it is that it has a direct implication on the pharmaceutical industry as much as it does the oil industry, because when you're talking about a zero-point energy, you are essentially eradicating most of the ailments that we are affected with as human beings. 
And of course, many of these industries, once this paradigm is established and it does become the norm, will disappear. And this, in my mind, is where the shift will take place, and I think it will take place very quickly, towards us really finding nature, finding the vibrations of the earth, all of us finding the waves of the earth and, and returning back to it or going towards it. And so that complexity is there, but as we talk about it more, I think that you would agree that it is going to become more acceptable in wider circles in those uh, many think tanks that are out there now. Absolutely. I, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm very encouraged by what you say because, um, you know, I've been at this for a very long time. And you're, you also make a very important point, which is that, uh, that we, we must cooperate with nature. We can't work against it. And if you look at the uh, materialistic paradigm, almost without exception, especially when you look at these multi-trillion dollar vested interests, whether it's in using fossil fuels, nuclear power, pharmaceuticals, or the medical establishment with surgery and so forth and so on, that, that this is also unnecessary. In that, and if we look at the pioneering work of, for example, Victor Schauberger back in the... Uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, in which he was able to, to discover ways of restructuring water, which has now become its own wonderful breakthrough field, where, where water can be actually used to our advantage, where we can actually literally heal ourselves and our waterways through positive intention and through uh, restructuring. This is all very exciting to me. This is cutting-edge stuff as well, of course, as the uh, zero-point field. These are all methods of cooperating with nature, working with it for the highest good of, of everything. And then we can have a truly sustainable future. In our final three minutes of this program, Brian O'Leary, could you give me a very brief description of what you are trying to create in Ecuador that acts as a model for indigenous people in particular, particularly those people in Haiti that I'm about to uh, meet with uh, and support in finding their culture for the future in pushing back against the establishment, uh, the corporate vehicles. Could you give us a very brief description of what you have created there? Well, yes. Uh, my wife, Meredith, who is a, a world-class artist, um, and I established, well, we moved here a little more than six years ago, and we established a place we call Montesuenos, Spanish for Mountain Dreams, and we've created this uh, incredible center that was synergistically created. It was obviously a totally new paradigm approach to life. We've uh, received uh, hundreds of guests for both a, a bed and breakfast, but also for a number of conferences that focus on consciousness and the environment. And we are working with some of the indigenous people here in Ecuador who, who have a fairly strong voice. They may not get their way, but their voice is definitely heard because we have some issues here in Ecuador that are symptomatic of, I think, of the global problems we have, namely that the oil companies want to come in to the uh, precious Amazon rainforest and the habitats of indigenous people, and uh, which we, we, we've learned... <laughs> 
that, that is just not good for the environment. It's just destroying the habitat and destroying the biodiversity of the earth. So I feel very uh, passionate about that and have been working with various groups, but especially in concert with the indigenous groups, that, that we can use innovation to replace clean innovation like zero-point energy to replace uh, oil drilling and mining and agro-mineral exports, biofuel plantations. They're all just terrible, terrible travesties to the environment. It's like we're, we're on the run because these things are happening very fast. And unfortunately, the government of Ecuador and most governments want the immediate income to make them look good from the oil exports. So we're dealing with a conundrum now, which puts me clearly in the camp of the indigenous people and their rights. How do you think that the Carl Sagans and many of those people that you met back in the 60s and 70s would feel about where you are now? Well, I think that uh, if they were still alive or the ones that are still alive have, have totally uh, given me up uh, as a lost cause. Very clearly, I've, I've never been invited back to these places or to give a talk. It, it's culturally totally different. I, guess it's, I make it okay because now I have new colleagues and new, uh, new ways of, of expressing, new ways of creating a sustainable future for all of humankind. Well, I certainly believe that we may have the opportunities in the near future here to reverse that trend. Brian O'Leary, it has been a great pleasure talking to you today on this first program in our series. I thank you so very much and look forward to our program again tomorrow. Thank you, David, and all the best to you. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have gained much information from this program today. You can receive information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com.